Good morning, church. How we doing? Isn't he good to us? Amen. 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 Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. If you want to, it's been a good morning already. Amen. Amen. He is good. He is able. He is loving. He is powerful. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 and also Joshua chapter 2, if you want to uh, put your place in both. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, just verses 30 and 31, and then we're going to flip over to Joshua 2, 1 through 14. If you're there, say amen. amen. Hear the reading of God's word. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Over to Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued out. It was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God... He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me in my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then... When the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, a risky faith, a risky faith. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, thank you for uh, your grace to us today that is so evident. As every day you wake us up, you give us breath, you give us life, but today especially, as we gather to worship you and we sense your coming mercy towards us. What a great day the Lord has made. And we rejoice. And God, as we look to your word, we pray 
that you would help us to open our eyes and our ears to receive what you would say and speak to us. And so we ask that you would transform our minds to be conformed to your image, that, Lord, the words that I speak would bring you honor and glory, but more than that, the lives that leave this room would be transformed, that all of us, God, would be formed into your image for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The Heart Attack Grill. It's in downtown Las Vegas. Never been there before, but I was reading about it this week, and, and they have named this place Las Vegas, and they've left in an ambulance. environment. In fact, it's hospital-themed, where you walk in, and the first thing they ask you to do in the restaurant is to put on a hospital gown. Like the entire time, the owner kind of walks around, checks in with people, and he's dressed in his doctor garb. I mean, all these people in this hospital theme, and here's what they're going after. On the menu, what they call life-threatening items. You have 10,000-calorie cheeseburgers. They have these, these life-threatening french fries, is what they're called on the menu. I don't swear, literally, they're trying to give people a thrill through eating. And you walk in and you know you sit down and, and you eat this crazy food and people are taking pictures on Instagram and they, they want this experience of being there. And they were interviewing the owner about why in the world would anybody come to this place? It's a huge hit. And this is what the owner, the owner who's, who's created this, he says, I have no idea why anyone would sit down, look at a menu and it say 9,993 calories and say, I want that. He said, but those are the people we attract. The risk takers, the thrill seekers, the people who are looking for a brush with death at lunchtime. I mean, some people just have a different view of risk, right? I mean, some risks, at least for me, are, are just not worth taking. There's some risks, I, I mean, maybe it's, it's worth the experience to go to that kind of place, but, but I don't know if I could force myself to eat a 10,000-calorie cheeseburger. I mean, have you ever taken a risk you thought afterwards, like, this, this was not worth it? I mean, it might have been you, you were trying to ask somebody out on a date that it didn't go so well. Once the conversation got started, you're realizing this, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Or maybe you quit your job thinking you had another job lined up and then it fell through. And so you took the risk to leave one job, but now you got no job. Right. Or, or maybe it's a hard conversation you were having with a friend and and you're thinking about it, praying about it. You're getting ready for the conversation. You take the risk to go have the conversation and it falls flat. Like, have you ever taken a risk where you realize afterwards, right? It's always afterwards that this was not a good idea. In fact, we're all so familiar with that. We, we have built entire industries in our culture around risks, right? There's a risk management department in many big companies where you're, you're making sure that, that people are taking good risks if they're taking risks. There's risk management and financial planning. There's risk management and, and medical procedures and businesses, nonprofits. You've got all these things, and the goal in risk management is real simple. You minimize the risk and you maximize the reward, right? That, that's what, what the, the evaluation is all about. You're, you're trying to minimize the risk so you can uh, maximize the reward. And, and many times, for, for many years, you, you, the more you get to know yourselves, you, you, you kind of realize what risks are worth it. 
And some personalities are maybe more risk-averse, if you will. There's some people that, that no matter what, you, you just don't see risk, and you're like, ah, I don't know if I can do that. I, it just doesn't seem like it's worth it. But more than our personality, what risks really reveal is our heart. It really reveals our heart. Let me, let me just give you this. Risks are, are value statements. They're value statements. It's, it's what you think is worth it. Does that make sense? Like the, the idea of a risk is just simply to say, I think what, what this may cost me on the other end is going to be worth it. And so this is why people are, have you know, different risks that we'll take because some things are more valuable to some people than others, right? We, we may take a risk for our career. We may take a risk for our children. We may take a risk for a friendship or a risk to get married or a risk for some, something that we hold valuable, right? The, the idea to, to, be, to be approved or to have status or to have some kind of influence, we're willing to take risks that maybe someone else wouldn't take. Because risks reveal your heart, no matter what the risk is. And so the question I want us to think about today as we walk through this text is, what risks are worth taking for you? Or to put it another way, what's worth your risk? What's worth your risk? Because we're, we're continuing our series today uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're calling it Enduring by Faith. And we're looking at how, in the context of the, of the book of Hebrews, the early church was struggling with suffering and persecution, right? The Roman Empire was oppressing the church. They were causing all these problems. And these are Jewish Christians who left their Jewish faith to come follow Jesus. And, and many of them are now wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to give up all that I had in my previous life? I had comfort. I had status. I had mobility. I had all these things. Now I'm living in hiding and fear and concern and I'm following Jesus, I don't know if this is worth it. I don't know if, if what I signed up for was this. And then we come now to Hebrews 11 in the story of Rahab. And Rahab's faith speaks directly to this. What I love about Rahab's faith is she is so full of a faith that, that moves her towards taking risks because she knows the reward is always worth it. She knows the reward of God. What God has in store for her is worth it. And so if you're taking notes today, I want to look through her story, beginning with this idea of a cover-up. Because when we enter into this story, we're going to see that Rahab is immediately brought into this difficult situation. And so if you're taking notes, the first point is the cover-up. Look at verse 1 in Joshua chapter 2. It says this, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Now, pause there for a moment. If you're just joining with us or, or maybe you're kind of new to the Bible, you might be asking, who is Joshua? Joshua is actually the uh, person who fills in for, for Moses when Moses passes away. So Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt, led them in their liberation from this oppression in, in Egypt, and then he leads them through the wilderness, gets them all the way to the promised land, and then he passes away, and Joshua takes over for Moses. 
And Joshua is now tasked with bringing them into the land, right? He, his mission now is to complete what Moses had begun. And so they come to the shores of the promised land, and he sends some spies out to go see what's going on in Canaan. And when he shows up, or, or when the spies show up, they see that there's lots of people living there, and there's things going on, and, and they're panicking because they're wondering, is anybody going to find us? And so the Bible says that they go and they hide in a prostitute's home because they're worried they're going to get found out. And so here we're introduced to Rahab as the spies come into her home. And when we're introduced to Rahab, she's, she's given this, this category. She's called Rahab the prostitute. In fact, all throughout the Bible, almost every time Rahab is mentioned, that tag comes with her the rest of biblical history. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. And so we see from right here when we're introduced to Rahab that this is a defining characteristic of her story, and she is portrayed as this marginalized character. She's portrayed as an outsider on all accounts. You see, she's a woman, she's a pagan, she's a Gentile, and she's a prostitute. She might be the last person you would think would be in Hebrews chapter 11. She might be the person that everybody else had written off, and here's Rahab front and center in the hall of faith. And so the question becomes, why is Rahab the prostitute in Hebrews 11? It's real simple. She took a risk. She took a risk. Rahab receives these spies in, and, and uh, these soldiers are coming to look for them. The king sends the soldiers, go find these spies that we've heard about. And the spies come into her house, and, and this is what it says in verse 4. It says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said to, to the soldiers, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. This is fascinating because Rahab's first act of faith is a lie. And we don't have time to get into all the ethics of that, but her first act of faith is a lie. Like, what spies are you talking about? I don't know. I mean, those guys, they came by. I didn't know where they were from, but they moved on. They're gone now. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. The whole time, the spies are on the roof hiding under this stuff that she had covered them with. So Rahab is, is willing to take the risk. She's willing to risk herself. And this is what later is commended in the New Testament. Hebrews commends her with her faith. Later on, James, in, in James chapter 2, verse 25, he uses Rahab as an example to say Rahab is what it looks like to have faith expressed through works. You catch that? James is not saying that Rahab was saved by her actions. James is saying that Rahab is an example of faith that transforms your actions, right? James is saying, and Hebrews is saying, that her faith wouldn't allow her to stay safe. Her faith wouldn't allow her to stay comfortable. Her faith wouldn't allow her to remain the same as she was before. It moved her to take a risk, because faith takes risks. Faith requires risks. Corrie ten Boom uh, and her family were, were watchmakers in Holland, and uh, they, they were there when the Nazis invaded Holland in, in 1940, I believe it was, and, and uh, as you know, probably the story of the Nazis, they, they invaded, they, they started to dispel all the Jews, and they were arresting anybody that was helping the Jews. And so here it is, 1942, they'd been there a while, 
and a Jewish woman comes and knocks on the Ten Booms house. She's in a panic. She tells them that her husband was just arrested. Uh, her son was in hiding at the house, and, and uh, she was not able to go back to the house because the soldiers were still occupying her home. And so she's asking for refuge. She's asking for help. And uh, here's Corey Ten Boom and her father at the door. And her father, this devout Christian, this God-fearing man, he says this when she tells her story, knowing the risk, knowing that, that this could be the end for their family, he says, he says, young lady, all, all of God's children are welcome here in this house. And they bring her in to this house, not knowing what that really meant. And next thing they know, they've joined the Dutch resistance. And now people are sending people to their house and it becomes this hiding place. And about every you know, few days, few weeks, they're sending new people. They had about five or six people at a time, and they built a room that they called the hiding place in their home. And so when people came by, they didn't know that the house was full of these refugees. Over a two-year period, they had over 800 people go through their house. And after two years, someone finally ratted them out. Someone told that the house was, was being used in this way, and so the police come and raid, and they find evidence that they were hiding people in their home, and uh, they actually take the Cory uh, Ten Boone's family to a concentration camp. Her father and her sister would not make it out. She miraculously was released. You can read her whole story. It's a fascinating story. But while she was in jail on her way to the concentration camp, she receives a letter and this is what the letter said. It just said, all your watches in your cabinet are safe. It was someone, one of her friends who were a part of the underground Dutch resistance saying that there were actually six people in hiding when the police came to raid their home that they never found. And they got to safety because they were willing to take a risk. See, two people didn't make it, but six did and 800 did. And their faith was expressed in their willingness to sacrifice. This is what, J what James is talking about. This is what Hebrews is talking about. That this, this faith, this real enduring faith transforms us. Right? It, it doesn't leave us the same. It moves us beyond. In other words, it's, it's more than a belief. It's more than a doctrine. It's more than this vague sense of gospel-centeredness. It's something that transforms us. It doesn't leave us the same. And so we come out with a transformed life, willing to risk it all. Willing to do whatever is required of us. It's a faith that changes things we don't want to change. Changes things like how we interact with people on social media. Changes things like uh, how we raise our kids, how we speak to our spouse, where we find our hope, where we find our comfort where we interact with people, how we speak to those that we disagree with, how we love our enemies. It's a faith that transforms every area of our life and doesn't leave us the same. It doesn't leave us the same. In fact, the greatest area it transforms is the, the ability to take a risk to love. Because love comes with a cost. It comes with a cost. Love for God, love for neighbor, it cost Rahab her own safety to love these spies. It cost Corey Ten Boom and her family their own safety to love the people who were put in their life by God. 
See, the reason we struggle with this so much is because our culture is driven in the opposite direction by consumerism. Right? This idea that love is going to cost you something and it's going to require risk and in order to love God and to love people, it's going to transform your life. It goes right in the face of our culture's deep, deep consumerism. Right? Consumerism is all about what can I get? Love is all about what can I give? You see the difference? You see the fundamental conflict in what God is calling us to? Consumerism is is seeing life through this lens. We're asking this question, what is the best option for me? What what can I give the least to gain the most? Do you hear that? I mean, that's how we evaluate things. That's how we evaluate relationships. That's how we evaluate church. That's how we evaluate our small group. That's how we evaluate people in our life that we care about. That's how we evaluate marriage. All of these things, it's through the lens of what can I keep? What can I gain? What can I get? What, what can I get out of this relationship, right? And, and, and what happens is our faith hasn't really transformed the deepest consumerism in our heart that still pervades us. And you might be asking, why? What? Why, if if we have faith in Jesus, why does it still not seem to affect that attitude? Why do Christians look just like the world in our consumerism that we can't even see? I'll tell you, it's because underneath consumerism is the idol of comfort. It's the idol of comfort. We talk a lot about idolatry around here. What idolatry means is real simple. But the problem is when you take a good thing meant to be enjoyed and you make it into a God thing that's now worshipped and it becomes the ultimate thing and it becomes the thing we have to protect at all costs, you've now become an idolater. It's what's happened to you and me. It's what's happened to all of us. And the reason, listen, the reason consumerism and and the idol of comfort is so harmful to our ability to endure is because the moment you've decided to worship comfort, you've given up on transformation. You've given up. Because the only way transformation happens is when you are uncomfortable. The only way transformation happens is when you are not able to say, I worship this thing because of what it gives to me, but transformation means I've now turned around and said, what can I let go of? What can I risk? You hear that? It it keeps us from it because the moment things get hard, we'll opt out. The moment the marriage gets hard, I'm out. The moment the relationship gets hard, I'm out. The moment the conversation with my friend gets hard, I'm out. The moment it costs me too much, I'm going to go find a better product. We're we're trained in consumerism. If you don't believe me, ask yourself, when was the last time you paid more for something than was asked? Like someone said, this costs $5, and you say, great, let me give you 10 Try that. They'll look at you crazy. Because you are trained since the time you're in a diaper to believe I have to get the most out of that person. I don't care what it costs them. I'm about me. 
You hear that? And here's Rahab who says, I don't care what it costs me. How, how does she have that kind of faith that transforms how she loves? This is the second point, the confession. Let's look at what she confesses. Uh, after the soldiers leave, right, they, they go out of her house. Uh, Rahab goes up on the roof and she talks to these men, these spies. And this is what she says in verse 10. I don't have time to read all that she says, but this, this is kind of the heart of what she says in verse 10. She says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Stop right there. There is this clear contrast between faith and fear in the text. Did you catch it? Rahab is recounting all the gossip that they've heard about Israel, right? They're, they're over in Jericho hearing about these people who are wandering around the wilderness and all the things that God is doing. They hear about how God delivered them from Egypt and Pharaoh's hand. They hear about how he split the Red Sea. They hear about how God beat these incredible kings and armies with this little makeshift group that had nothing with them. I mean, God is doing incredible things. They hear about it, and everyone, she says, their hearts are melted in terror. They're afraid for their life because they interpret it as now we're next. And they're terrified. And she says, I've had a different response. She, she hears this, this, this woman who's been marginalized literally to the walls of the city. Did you catch when I was reading it? Rahab lives in the walls. You can't get further from the center. She is in the wall of the city. She's been used and abused by men for years. She's been told this whole time she's worthless. And then she hears about this God. She hears about this God who can deliver from, uh, from, from sin. She hears about this God who, who, who cares about the cries of his people. She hears about this God who, who keeps the promises that he made generations before. She hears about this God who has the power to do something for someone like her. And she says, that must be the real God. She says, your God, the Lord your God, he is God. He is God. He is the one who, who, gives, uh, who gives liberation to his people. He is the one who gives forgiveness for sin. He is the one who, who in, his, in his grace and his mercy, he moves Rahab to confess faith. Right? It was seeing this kind of God, this kind of powerful, loving, merciful, redemptive God that moves Rahab to faith. And so... Yes, faith requires risk, but listen, if you're going to take risk, you need that kind of faith. Risk requires faith. You need a faith in a God who has the ability to have your back. You may have heard of the, uh, the dog whisperer. Well, before the dog whisperer, there was the horse whisperer. And I recently heard about this crazy guy. His name is Monty Roberts, Monty Roberts, and he was raised in uh, the, the business of, of training horses, and Monty Roberts, from a young age, was involved, and, and he was told that, that uh, there was only one way to train a horse, by beating them down. That, that was it. You had to break them down until they were willing for you to, to ride them and, and for a saddle to be on their back. That, that's the only way. 
Well, he got older and, and started interacting with these horses more and realized that he noticed there's this, uh, this nonverbal communication happening between horses and also between horses and people. And so he started to realize that that nonverbal communication can actually be used in training. And so he developed, through a long period of time, he developed a new way of breaking a horse by not breaking them. He actually called it hooking on rather than breaking down. And I'm, I don't know much about horses at all, but I'm not going to tell you how it works. But you can watch the YouTube video. It's fascinating. He, he uh, will bring a horse in who's been untamed, which usually takes days, weeks, maybe months to, to get them to the point where they're ready to let someone ride them. He does it in 30 minutes. And he, he creates this environment where somehow he builds trust that they know he cares about them. They know that he's not going to hurt them. They know that there's something different about this guy. And so he comes up to them, he, he creates that environment, and then he starts to walk away. And you can see on the horse just this, this conflict. Should I follow him? Should I not follow him? And then the horse gives in and starts to trot towards him, walks over, bends its head down, the sign of submission, and lets him jump right off. It's fascinating. And so instead of, of forcing her into submission, he loves her into submission. He loves her into submission. It's what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 2, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Right? God, God could, because he's God, he could force you into submission. And there will be a day where if you don't submit to him, he will force you into submission. It says every knee will bow. But he chooses in this moment to say, I want to woo you in. I want to draw you in with my love and my kindness and my gentleness. I want to demonstrate to you my love. That's what Paul says, that God has demonstrated, not just talked about his love, but he's demonstrated his love to us in what he's actually done in that he loved us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love. It's in his gentleness, in his kindness, in his goodness towards us. This is the grace that moved Rahab. This is the grace as, as Rahab heard about a God in this far off distance who was unlike any other God she'd ever met. Unlike any other human she'd ever met. This was a God who, who loved without restriction. This was a God who delivered without resistance. This was a God who could do things that she had never seen before. He was powerful to, powerful to save. He kept his promises. He identified with the hurting and the hopeless. And when she saw that God, she knew that every other God was false. She knew that every other idol was nothing compared to him. Because only a true God could love like this. See, there's, there's a security in the gospel that consumerism can't offer. Listen to me carefully. Consumerism says this, as long as you continue to consume, you're good, right? As long as you continue to buy this or do this or earn this or as long as you have someone's approval and as long as they like you and as long as you keep the relationship all right, then you're good. But the moment you sin, the moment you, you fail, the moment your, your life falls apart and brokenness becomes your situation, there's no use for you anymore. And because there's no use for you anymore, you're kicked to the curb. You're worthless. See, consumerism, any idol of any kind, 
They don't love you. They use you. But God, when he sees us in our sin, when God sees Rahab the prostitute, when God sees Israel the oppressed, when God sees Ben the idolater, when God sees you in your failures and your brokenness and your poverty and whatever you're struggling with, God sees you and he moves towards you. He moves towards you with his grace and his mercy because he sees you not for what you can do for him, but but what he can do for you. He sees you not as someone that he wants to use, right? So many times Christians use that language. I just want God to use me. I just want God to use me. Forget it. He doesn't need to use you. Who do you think you are? He might, but that's not what his love is about. His love is about he wants to give himself away. Give himself away. And if there's a God like that, if there's a God like that who gives himself without any need from you, you're absolutely secure. You're absolutely secure. And if you have that kind of security, you can risk anything. That's what happens to Rahab. You catch that? Rahab saw this God who who loved her so incredibly that she knew if if she got caught with the spies, what's the worst that could happen? Right? It's like Paul says, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Nobody. You have a security that frees you to risk anything. Corrie ten Boom later, when she was reflecting after being uh, released from the concentration camp and this miraculous work that God did. She she wrote a book, and in the book she says this. She says, never be afraid to trust an unknown God or an unknown future to a known God. Someone needs to hear that today. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. In other words, if, if this is what you know is true about God, If this is what you know, that that God has loved me so much in my sin, in my failure, in my foolishness, then everything else that I don't know, all the unknowns about my future, all the unknowns about my relationships, about my job, about my kids, all the unknowns, I can trust Him. Because this is what I know. He's worked like this. He is this kind of God. How do, you, how do you have that kind of securing love? How, how do you experience that? You need an exchange. This is the last point, and I'll close. The cord. There, there's a cord here. Look at, verse, uh, look, look at Rahab's words in verse 12. It says, Now then, she says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, I, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. See, Rahab uses this important phrase here. She says, deal kindly. And if you've you've been around here a while, you've heard us as we're walking through this Old Testament narrative uh, in this series, this this word hesed. We've been talking about how hesed is is the word in Hebrew that that communicates God's covenant love. It's it's a sense of loyal love. It's a sense of love without an exit strategy or, or love that's one way. Right, that, that's God's hesed love, and that's the word that Rahab uses. She says, I've shown God's hesed love to you. I've dealt kindly with you. Now would you show the same to me? 
Would you hesed me because I've hesed you? Right? That's what she's saying. And they know what that means. These men, these are Jewish men, they know what hesed love means. And so they summarize it so beautifully, right? They say in verse, I think it's 14, that they say in verse 14, they say, oh yes, our life for yours, even to death. Did you catch it? They, they know when she says, will you hesed me, that it's going to cost them their life. They know that this is going to be an exchange of one life for another life. That, that's how this hesed love works, that it's going to be costly. It's going to be a sacrifice. And so they agree for this sign to signify their love. It's a scarlet cord. Look at verse 18. It says, this is the men now talking. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Right? The scarlet cord was going to be the marker. This was going to be the sign that, that Rahab was marked. She was marked for mercy. All of Jericho was about to experience God's judgment, but she was marked. She was marked. Rahab the prostitute is now Rahab with the scarlet cord. Rahab the prostitute is now the one who's marked for mercy and grace and salvation and redemption. And so they, they tell her these instructions and then they go back to Joshua and they tell Joshua, all right, Rahab told us everyone's terrified. We're ready to go in. And so Joshua sends people to over. To, to cross the Jordan into the, into the promised land, and they're ready to take the city, and God stops them. God says, I want you, before you take the city, I want it to be an act of faith. And so rather than go and attack Jericho, even though you know they're terrified, even, even though this is what's happening, I want you to know that this can only happen from me. And so he tells them to take seven days and, and make seven laps around the city. Right, this is that Sunday school story, one lap, two lap, three lap, all the way around. And then on the seventh day, and they make the seventh lap, you know what happens. They blow the trumpets, and they, they shout their praises, and the walls fall down flat. Read the text. It doesn't just crumble. You might have seen that in Sunday school. It actually says it falls down flat as if the walls themselves were bowing down to this God of heaven and earth. And then they go in to take the city. And where's Rahab? Where's Rahab as this is happening? Look, it's in chapter 6, verse 25. It says, but Rahab the prostitute. Again, there's the, the way she's described. Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. It wasn't her past efforts. It wasn't her present goodness. It wasn't some future intention that she had. It was the fact that she was marked. She was marked for mercy. She was marked as someone to be saved. She was marked as someone who would be delivered. It was this scarlet cord. It was a sign of an exchange. Because risky faith requires that an exchange happens. It requires this exchange. In fact, the scarlet cord, it, it points backwards to the Passover night. You remember the Passover where God calls his people to, to take a lamb and to sacrifice the lamb and to put the blood on the doorposts of their house? He says, I'm, I'm going to come into the land. I'm going to, to come in and I'm going to bring judgment. But I'm not going to be looking for good people. I'm not going to be looking for bad people. I'm going to be looking for covered people. I'm going to be looking for the scarlet blood upon your household. And when I see the scarlet blood, you'll be saved. 
And so here we have the scarlet cord, and it's looking back to the Passover night as Rahab enters into that redemptive narrative. But the scarlet cord also points forward. It points forward to another exchange, right? In the Passover, it was a lamb for a life, and now it moves forward to Jesus, who's going to take that exchange. It's pointing forward to Rahab's family line, right? Rahab enters into the line of Israel. She marries into Israel, and she gives birth to none other than Boaz. And Boaz marries Ruth, and Boaz and Ruth give birth to uh, their, their great-great-great-grandson, David. And David's given this promise by God that David's throne would have no end, that there would be one who would come in the line of David that came through the line of Rahab the prostitute, and his name would be, among, uh, or be above every other name. His name would be above every name in all of heaven and earth. His name would be the king who would reign forever, and it would be Jesus. And this king, Jesus, when he came, he took that risk of hesed love. He came with one agenda, my life for yours. He left the heights of heaven to come to the depths of hell. Jesus didn't bow to the idol of comfort, but he conformed to the cross. Taking our place, he took the guilt we earned, he took the shame we feel, he took the judgment we deserve, and with the crown of thorns and the lashes on his back and the spear in his side, all of it, he was drenched in scarlet blood so that God could look upon him and pass over us because he saw an exchange had happened. He saw that there was a Savior who was willing to take the risk of love, to love us at whatever the cost it was for us. As Hebrews says, he looked ahead and for the joy set before him, he endured. He endured the cross. He is the scarlet thread, the sign of God's love for sinners like us. That's who he is. And so as we close, I need to ask you, do you, do you need to take the risk of faith today? Whether, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, it, it's an ongoing risk. You may call yourself a Christian and, and God is working on you right now with, with things you are wondering, should, should I take a risk here? Should, should I risk loving? Because I've been hurt before. I've been through this before. This has been hard. I I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know how it's going to work out. And and God is saying, you can trust me because you know me. You don't know what's going to happen, but you know me. Or maybe you're here today and you don't call yourself a Christian and you're still wrestling with your faith, trying to figure out your relationship with God. And God is saying to you, the reward is better than anything you give up in that risk. Because the reward is Jesus alone. And if you lose whatever you think is most important to you to follow Jesus, it's worth it. Because he's better. He's better. He's better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are the God who takes risks. You are the God who loves us in our failures. You love us in our sin, in our brokenness. You Love us in our foolishness and our repeated rebellion. Because you're the God that doesn't give up on us. And so we're thankful that your redemptive work is not dependent on us. And so we are safe. We are secure. And so whatever sin or misery we might face, whatever difficulties, whatever 
suffering and persecution may come our way, Lord, we know that you will care for us. If you are for us, and you are, nobody can be against us. And so we ask, Lord, as we turn our eyes towards you, that you would give us the gift of faith to trust you in that, to trust you when it's hard, to trust you when we walk and it seems like we walk in blindness. But, Lord, thank you for that gift of faith that helps us to walk by faith and not by sight. We, hate, we pray that you would give us that today by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We come now to our Lord's table this morning. And as we partake together, there's two things that the Lord calls us to examine our hearts in together. Number one, is your faith in Jesus? Is your faith, your trust really in Him? Are you trusting in yourself or are you trusting in Him? This table is not meant to be a table for the sinless or the perfect because none of us would be at the table. But the table is meant to be for those who have the scarlet cord, those who have the blood of Jesus defining them and the body of Jesus defining them. And so that's what our faith is in. Our faith is in His work for us. And so that's what we're asking you today. Is your faith in Him? If not, we'd ask that you'd wait today. Let this be an opportunity to pray and, and not partake together, but to, to pray and reflect on your relationship with God as, as uh, you let the elements pass. Uh, the second thing is to uh, ask yourself, are you living in Christian community in a, in a local church? Around here, we, we call that church membership. You don't have to be a member here at, at Strong Tower. You could be visiting from another church and partake today. But we do believe this meal is meant to be for the gathered church together. That the idea of an isolated Christian is an oxymoron. We, we want you to be in the church, thriving with God's people. And so if those two things are true of you, we would love for you to partake together with us today. Uh, because of COVID, we are using these little prepackaged dudes. And uh, you take the top off. It's a little clear plastic, and you'll have the, the bread. And then you take another layer off, and it has the juice. And so as you get that ready, let me uh, pray for us together. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, we're amazed, we're in awe that you would invite us. You would invite the tax collectors, the prostitutes, but not only that, you would invite the Pharisees. You would invite the, the priests and the rabbis. You invite the self-righteous. You invite the broken. You invite the, the worried and the doubting. You invite us because we're here on your behalf. And so we ask as we eat this meal that you would nourish our souls with the good news of the gospel, that we might love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Taking the bread together. This is the, oh wait, never mind forgot one last part. Now the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, giving thanks. This is his body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of him. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Now, taking the bread together, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And taking the cup together, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Amen. Let's pray one more time before we sing. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work into our hearts and our minds 
deep into our souls the good news of the gospel, that it might come out of us in the good works that bring glory to your name. We pray that our lives will be transformed, not just in our thinking, but in our living. We pray, God, that we would be people who take risks of love because your gospel calls us to it. And not only calls us, but your gospel empowers us toward it. We pray you would be honored in that by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Oh, he is my son. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life. Oh, he is my son. You are good. Oh! 
dismiss just a few reminders if you didn't get a chance to fill out a connect card uh, you can do that in the back if you're in the house if you're online you can do that on the website uh, we actually have new gifts for guests that we just got in so if you are a guest today and you fill out a connect card bring it to the back in the foyer they'd love to give you a gift and just say thanks for being here we're glad you could be with us um, also 9 15 every sunday we have grow classes in the morning before church we'd love for anybody to come the classes just got started so you can jump right in uh, for this semester, but we would love for you to join us. It's just a great time to study God's word together and to be together in fellowship. So want to invite you to that as well. Last quick announcement is this Tuesday is the celebration uh, meeting for peace, which is our justice ministry partner here in, in Polk County. Uh, you can visit online or come online or you can go uh, to the to the actual in-person event. But it's a great time to learn more about peace because we're celebrating all that's happened this year. So if you haven't been to anything Peace has done, it's a great introduction to know what's going on, hear about what God is doing. We'd, we'd love to have you there. It's 6.30 on Tuesday night, okay? I think that is it. Uh, if your faith is in Jesus, hear the benediction as he sends us out with his grace and, sa er, and his saving grace to us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Love y'all.